If your customers don't understand how to make your product work properly, that's your fault. Welcome back, everyone. This is the Support Ops Podcast. It's a show devoted entirely to helping you be a better customer support pro. Check out the blog at supportops.co. Follow along on Twitter where the handle's at supportops. I'm your fantastic host, Chase Clemens, and my guest today is even better. Before we uh, dive into that, big thanks to our awesome partner, Snappy. I still love this app after all these weeks. It's super easy to get started with. New features are being added all the time by Ian and his crew. So definitely, if you're in the market for a customer support app, check it out. Supportops.co forward slash Snappy is where you want to head. This is episode number 23 with Joseph Rooks. He's a support artist, writer, podcast editor, visual designer, content strategist, and we're just going to round it out and call him a creative Swiss Army knife. So, Joseph, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, how's your day been so far? It's going pretty great. Just getting ready to do a big move, um, like 300 yards across the street to a little house from the 40s, and we're really excited about it, but I've got a lot of packing to do first. It's the packing that always sucks the most. Yeah, fortunately, we don't own too, too much stuff, so it should be pretty easy. Well, cool. So let's kind of start with the basics here, just to give our audience a little background on yourself. Well, I have done a lot of different things. I've worked in the shipping industry. I have done some podcast editing, some freelance writing. Uh, I went to art school, and while I was there, everyone thought I was a computer science major because I had a stick of RAM from the 90s on my keychain that I eventually took off because I got tired of getting confused with the computer science people. <laughs> um, and like you said, I, I call myself a creative Swiss Army knife because I try to do as many different things as possible and just try to find as many interesting things to do as I can. And um, I have also been an estate executor twice, and I've been uh, I've done support for Virginia Tech for a really interesting um, move-in period there where. Uh, 25,000 undergrads descend on the campus and they put together a team of people to go talk to each individual person who lives on the campus and make sure that all of their uh, technology is working properly and that they're secure and set up on the network. Um, so I'm just a mixed bag and uh, always looking for the next interesting thing to learn and the next technical thing to try out and fiddle with and dive into. See, now, the Virginia Tech thing interests me a lot. How, how in the world did you keep up with all of those students, all of the computer problems each semester? And I imagine you're, they're not coming to you. or You're probably going to their dorm rooms and things like that. Yeah, so what happened with that was um, I was in Blacksburg for the summer. It was the first summer that I spent there. Um, and... Some friends of mine who were computer science majors were involved with the computer consulting organization on campus called For Help Computer Consulting. It was all like the in-house technical support group that the students would take their computers to when they had problems or the, um, the technical support people would go out to their rooms. And they had a special program that they put together for the students who are moving in. And so... Around August and September, all of the students would move into their dorm rooms and they would put together a team. Well, they would put, they put together several teams consisting of a team member, uh, a technical expert, and then several like normal team members. Mm -hmm. And they would send these teams out to each of the dormitories and 
you would have a list of students that were supposed to be living there and their room numbers. And each student would have a little card with a little questionnaire on it. And so we would divide these cards up among the team and go door to door and have a conversation with the students as they were setting their equipment up, ask them questions about their antivirus software and um, whether or not they'd run this CD that the school produced that had the school's provided antivirus software and um, things like AdAware and SpyBot and whatever the, whatever the malware pr protection software of the day was. I can't remember now. Um, but there was a enterprise version of Norton Antivirus on it, and it ran some scripts that blocked malicious things for them automatically. Um, and then we would go door to door with these cards and say, hey, are you such and such? And we'd introduce ourselves and let them know, you know, this is what we're here to do. If you have any problems, our little office is in this area of the hall. And you can come grab us if you have any problems. And otherwise, we'll be back to check up on you after you get set up. And so our job was basically to go talk to each individual person in these residence halls and make sure that all of their technology was working. Um, sometimes it wasn't, and we would have to sit down with them and figure out what was going on. And if the team members had a problem they couldn't solve, they, slipped, they passed it on to the tech expert and the team leader to go and figure out so they could get on to checking off the people that had um, had fewer problems. And this was, this was the year that um, I, I did this two years in a row. And the first year was pretty easy. But the second year was when Windows Vista computers started shipping. Oh, and, that was, and that was the year that I, um, I was a tech expert for the first time instead of a team member. So I was dealing with all the difficult problems. It's like a perfect storm. Uh, yeah, definitely. It was a nightmare. And it was awesome. Because there wasn't a, there weren't any problems that I couldn't fix, which felt really good because I knew that Windows Vista was an absolute nightmare. Um, mostly it was the internet connections that weren't working at all. And you would go into the control panel and you'd see like five different ethernet connections that had been created every time they unplug and replug their ethernet cables back in. And um, it was just a mess, but it was a lot of fun. And um, there's some interesting, interesting horror stories that came along with that. We had one person who plugged a, you know, you know how laptops used to have modems on them. Oh yeah, back in the um, old days. Yeah, back in the old days when dinosaurs roamed the earth. That's when <laughs> I was doing this. Um, I guess this was 2007 that I, that this happened. There was one kid who plugged a phone line into his modem instead of, instead of plugging his computer in through the ethernet, he plugged a phone line in and then plugged the phone line into the campus phone network. And the campus phone network runs on a different voltage than normal phone lines do. So it actually fried his modem and smoke started coming out of it. <laughs> and it didn't work anymore after that. Not that it would have worked to give him an internet connection then, because that's obviously not how things work there, but it, it didn't work anymore after that. It was just kind of fried by the uh, higher voltage of the phone system there. And we had another guy who 
whittled down the end of his Ethernet cable to plug the end of it into a phone jack in the rooms (laughs) that hadn't worked since like the 60s. Like the actual phone jacks were in a very obvious place right next to the Ethernet cables. So if you have an Ethernet cable, you know, if you if you had the if you had the right the right end plugged into your computer, you would assume you would take the other end and then find you know, find where that fit. All right, find the partner. Right. And so the little box on the wall that was labeled Ethernet and phone, he completely ignored that and like pulled furniture out from the walls to find this phone jack buried behind the bunk beds. And when, when, the, when the end of the cable didn't fit, he actually took a knife and whittled it down and tried to plug it in and then came to ask us why that didn't work. So we had to tell him, yeah, I, th- I think you should probably go to the bookstore and, and get a new Ethernet cable and then plug it into this jack over here, the, the, the orange one, the very obvious orange one. Or just return the computer and, you know. Yeah. <laughs> maybe, you sh- maybe you should let us do this for you. <laughs> So one of the things that was that you mentioned that was kind of interesting was how everyone got the little packet, the CD, the welcome CD with everything they needed on it, um, which is, is nice. You know, it, it's one of those where it kind of shows that the university was thinking about uh, pre- not preventing some of these problems, but being proactive rather than just reacting to, to kids coming up and being like, hey, this doesn't work. This doesn't work. Um so did you find like a lot of the students would actually use that CD and install everything right, you know, or, or was it more just like a, an afterthought that they didn't really do anything with? Yeah, most of them did run it and everything went fine for them. We didn't have a whole lot of people that had problems most of the time. And the ones that did have problems, it usually wasn't related to that. So most of the students were very good about running that and getting their antivirus stuff set up. It's almost like a like a welcome kit, which a lot of uh, modern uh, products and apps and things don't really have. They're just going to dump you into a free trial or, or, or something like that. So when it comes to looking at the the design side of all this, looking at, you know, and anticipating the questions that the customer, you know, in this case, some of the college kids was going to have, um, do you think that that was a worthwhile investment? Is it something that support teams should be thinking about and, and kind of designing those kind of welcome kits for their customers? Yeah, I think that they did a really good job with this, even though, you know, I, I wouldn't have used Norton antivirus myself if you paid me because it, you know, their way of, their way of keeping your computer safe is to prevent you from using it <laughs> by making it too slow to use. Just shut it um, down. You'll never get a virus that way. Yeah, so I I was really hesitant to run it on my own computer, but for the vast majority of people, it was great. It was really well designed to run everything for you, and it would walk you through everything step by step. And the nerds didn't like it because it took away too much control. That's really my gripe about it is that it took too much of my control away. The nerds always hate that. Um, But for everyone else that didn't want to have to think about it, they packaged it up really nicely. They had some scripts that, you know, blocked malicious hosts that um, that they found in their analytics. Mm-hmm. Um, because everything that goes on in the network, they have a record of. And they're able to 
track all of the threats that come into the network. And it's it, they have a very sophisticated system at Virginia Tech for tracking all of that and preventing things from getting in before they even have a chance to. Um, they're very proactive about that. They have like their own little command center there. And for their email servers, um, I, mean, I don't think it's this way anymore because they're all they're running on Google Apps now. But when I went to school there, they had their own email servers, and all of the spam email that would target the at vt.edu email addresses, they would filter it before it even got to your inbox. So it wouldn't even make it to a spam box. It would just be killed. It would be dead on arrival. Mm -hmm. um, so all of these malicious things that could get into the network and then spread were just dead on arrival, killed as soon as they came in before they really reached the first email. And um, so the university was very proactive in you know, what things they protected their students from without like taking too much control away from people. Like they didn't block anything. Um, it wasn't like censorship. It was all mm -hmm. like malicious threats that they had dealt with in the past that they had found ways to block. Um, so I, I think that they did a really great job of uh, getting the students set up with that because uh, my roommate worked year round with the computer consultancy and they did a little event where they set up a computer with a fresh install of windows. Um, it had never been plugged into the network. It wasn't running any antivirus software. This CD that the school gave you hadn't been run on it at all. And they did a little pizza party event thing to get people to come out and pay attention to this, where they plugged the computer into the network. Um, and this was inside the school's network and uh, on like a part of the network that had a lot of this, a lot of the students' computers on it. Mm -hmm. And they plugged the Ethernet cable in while everybody was watching. And I think it was within like four minutes the machine blue screened because there's just so much malicious stuff that does get through on computers that are unprotected. And, you know, it's like... Um, you know, malware tries to spread through vulnerable computers mm -hmm. and they just target the weakest computers that are on the network. Um, they assume that they're going to be able to find their way into some number of them and then keep spreading. Well, that's why it's so important on these networks to have some kind of antivirus installed because there's something on the network is trying to get in at all times. Um, even though the school has all these preventative, all, has all of these preventative measures in place, um, there's always something just hammering at your computer trying to get in on these huge networks with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of computers on them. The school can control, to an extent, they can keep things from getting into the network in the first place. But once something is in the network, there's no way to like reach into my computer and deactivate that for them uh, unless they can identify one of the computers that's blasting this junk out. So that's why I say whatever they did with the CD, they did a really bang up job because the vast majority of people never had any problems. Now, you bring up an interesting kind of point here where Virginia Tech is actually filtering out some of this malicious things. And, and you know, it, it's one of those where we want you to use the, the, the stuff that we know works. Um, 
And it's something that we see in, in modern SaaS apps too. You know, they're dropping support for IE6 or IE7 or, or things like that. I know with our team at 37signals, we we don't support uh, Internet Explorer-wise anything below IE9 just because those browsers aren't as good, for lack of a better word. You know, they're they're prone to different... Uh, vulnerabilities and they're and they're just they're just not quite as up to standard as some of the the more modern browsers so what do you think about uh, companies that have products that are doing that right so they drop support for certain browsers or maybe they don't support certain situations all in the effort to make sure that the customer has a more safe and secure uh, working environment with your product i think that's a good thing to do i think it's like having a limited warranty on a car, when you buy a car, you don't expect the warranty to cover it forever. You expect it to be covered for a little while. And then after that, any problems you have with it, you're kind of, you know, you have to deal with that yourself and figure out what to do about it, whether that's going to be find a way to make it work yourself or upgrade to something else. And with technology, obviously the cycle is a lot shorter, but I think it's kind of similar. But what I think a lot of these companies do poorly is managing the expectations. Mm -hmm. So if something doesn't work in Internet Explorer 6 or Internet Explorer 7 or 8, or something doesn't work in a version of Safari from like Snow Leopard, they need to do a really good job of communicating that something isn't working and that they know about it and what the customer can do about it. Because if something just breaks and you kind of leave it to the customer to wander into your support forums and find out that, well, it's broken because you're using a browser from three years ago and there's nothing we can do about that because there's this new technology that we're using that doesn't work with that, mm -hmm. whatever. If you're making the customer go out of, out of their way to find out that what they're using doesn't work, then that's really a pretty poor way of explaining that situation to them. Especially if you are leaving it to your customer to wander into the support forums and then it's not even you that's explaining it. It's some other person that's having this problem who just understands it better and you're nowhere to be seen, which is what I think is happening with a lot of companies. They're not doing a great job of explaining that. So kind of diverging just a little bit here, but you brought up something that I want to delve a little bit more into. So you know, these companies have have error message that's that tend to be just kind of general right oops something broke or that wasn't right or um we were talking the other day uh, uh, a friend from wistia was talking about how they had one that actually said this is really rare and it shouldn't happen uh, and that was the error message right so when it comes to designing for those moments you know those points where the customer can be frustrated and needs some action to take um what do you think is kind of the, the best, not guidelines, but what kind of what kind of things should support be thinking about when they're designing those support those those error messages? Well, I think that if it's a technical deprecation issue, then they should just put a little banner at the top that also says, "Here's how you can get in touch with us if you don't know how to address this problem, and we'd love to talk with you to help you figure it out." You know, whether it's a phone call or an email or however they want to deal with it. Um, if your customers, if your customers don't understand how to make your product work properly, that's your fault, in my opinion. And 
you know, in that kind of a situation where if, if an error message pops up, maybe there should be a way to open up a live chat from inside of that error message instead of making them go find how to get to the live chat or go find the support forums. Mm-hmm. You know, error messages are usually just, you know, error number X, Y, zero, three, eight, two, whatever, you know, ambiguous thing that you have no hope of ever understanding yourself. Uh, and that's it. But, you know, why can't we have more support setups where it says, even, even, if, the, even if the error message is really general, it's, it, maybe it would say, we don't really know what happened, but, like, can you help us figure it out? Here's a button that opens a live chat, and, like, maybe a person pops in there and says, hey, I see you're having problems. You know, how can I proactively help you figure out how to solve this? without expecting that you're going to like come and figure out how to get our attention. Now, in, since we want to make everything just as, as simple and easy on the customer that we can at this point, um, you know, whenever they get frustrated, it's one of those, no matter what kind of avenue you go, whether it's email or live chat or even getting on the phone, it's kind of tough to see what they're seeing. And it's a lot of, um, you know, well, do you see this on your screen or does your screen look like this? And well, what happens if you click there? Uh, one of the things that, that you and I have talked about a little bit before is how short little videos and screencasts come in really handy there. So what do you think about, I've seen it done maybe once or twice before, nothing really big yet, but what do you think about using things like uh, Vine or, or even Instagram to do little short six second, 15 second videos helping the customer out and, and that kind of thing? Yeah, so something I do a lot is if I'm describing a problem to somebody on instant message, I'll just pop open QuickTime and start. Uh, QuickTime has a little screen recording tool inside of it that a lot of people don't know about. If you open up QuickTime Player, and this is on the Mac, so if you're using Windows, you might have to use something else. I don't know if there's a QuickTime Player for that that does this or not, Um, but I know that um, Camtasia, I think, is one of the good ones on Windows, and there may be others. But on the Mac, if you go and open QuickTime Player and then go to File, New Screen Recording, um, it'll let you record your entire screen or record just a portion of your screen. There's a little crop box that you can use to mm-hmm. crop the part that you're recording. And you can use this to do a quick like 30-second screencast about something. And so if I'm on Instant Message describing a problem to somebody and I'm spending a lot of time explaining like first you have to click here do you see this button okay click this button and go to this menu item and then this sub menu item and this sub sub menu item Um, and a lot of the time it's easier for me to just crack open Skype and record a 30 second video of me doing the thing I'm trying to show them how to do Mm -hmm. save that to the desktop um, stick it in Dropbox or upload it to like an FTP server um, with which I have a little icon in my dock for an app called File Shuttle. I don't know if it's still around. I, I think the website for it was down when I went to check on it today. Um, but I had it set up with my website's credentials for the FTP server and I, would, I just drag a file to it and it uploads it and then copies a link to it onto the clipboard mm-hmm. so I can paste it into an instant message. And I do that and then send a link to this video, this 30-second video of me actually doing the thing I'm trying to describe. 
and I send this to the person that I'm trying to help and they watch it a couple of times and then they get it just fine. And I didn't have to spend, you know, 30 minutes walking them through every individual button that they have to click. I just did it. And now they have this thing as a reference that they can watch whenever they need a refresher course. Um, and I think it would be really cool if we saw more of that in live support where you go and you do the problem with them. Mm-hmm. If you, if you can reproduce it, you go and do the problem and then send it to them. You show instead of tell. It's one of those where, uh, for me personally, I always learn better when I can see something, when I can see it happen, when I can uh, see how the flow is supposed to work or things like that. You know, there's so many help sites out there that focus more heavily on, on text for some reason, which, I mean, there are people out there that learn by reading. I totally get that. And text is easy. There's no, like, real... Uh, I mean, all you need is a text editor, and then you put it on your your help site, and you're good to go. How important are videos and screenshots and things like that for helping customers out? Should support teams be thinking about using videos and, and customer interactions uh, beyond just the the one on one, like also in in their help site? Absolutely. Different people learn different ways and some people are more visual and some people even have disabilities that make it hard for them to read things. So I think that support teams should be concerned with making more visual content for those people. I think that it's the support team's responsibility to help people the way that they need to be helped not the way that's most convenient for the support team to help them. And you know, if you're in support, you probably have some level of empathy and you care to serve people the way that they want to be served. Um, so if you're not making this visual content, maybe you should talk to your customers more and find out if that's something that they're interested in. Um, or maybe it's something that you should just assume would be a good addition that will make everything work more smoothly because a picture is worth a thousand words, they say. And if your customers show up to your wall of text and they have to parse that out. You know, one of the frustrations for me when I have to read a bunch of text versus just watching somebody do something is I have to go through and figure out, okay, well, this is the part where I'm, I'm reading through this wall of text that's explaining in detail how to do this. But I have to kind of figure out step. A lot of the time I have to figure out, all right, well, this is the part where I have to stop and then go and actually do this step. Like sometimes it's hard to figure out how to, how it's broken up mm-hmm. And maybe in some cases that's just because a lot of documentation is poorly written. Um, But for myself, I definitely learn quicker by watching somebody do what I'm trying to do. And so if I get frustrated with somebody's documentation for their software, I'll go open up YouTube and try to find the best video tutorial that I can find on how to make that. And if somebody on YouTube is making better video tutorials than your text documentation, maybe that's somebody that you should talk to about helping you get your documentation into shape. Because Just hire them right away. Yeah, just hire <laughs> them and have them do it. If they're doing such a good job that your customers would rather watch their videos than read your text, then that's an opportunity for you to improve your product for everybody that comes in contact with them. And it's kind of low-hanging fruit if their content is already out there. Just talk to them and see if you can work something out. I think that's like a little shortcut that some of these companies can take.
Yeah, and I know one of the things is from the customer support side, uh, when I first started doing some of the screencasts and videos and things like that for Basecamp, I was always really worried about it not being just like this top notch quality video, right? Like I did, I've never done those before. So jumping in and saying, all right, um, I, here's the problem I'm going to show people how to how to fix. And, and here's me recording and walking through and making sure everything's covered. The video at the end of the day, I guess, accomplished what it should, but it always felt low quality, like it was barely worthy of even being on YouTube, like you mentioned. So uh, should customer support people be worried about putting out lower quality stuff like that? Do they have to have these screencasts that are just all top notch Hollywood style awesomeness? No, I don't think so. The nice thing about screencasts is that there aren't any crazy lighting setups and it's all just happening in your computer. The lighting is as good as it gets inside this little box. So I think if you just show yourself doing whatever it is that you think your customers are going to do with your product the most, that's enough. If you get a decent mic and then just talk into it and explain step by step what you're doing, that's a good enough start. Um, there's a saying in writing, I don't know who said it, but I've always really liked it. It's that you can't edit a blank page. And if you don't have these screencasts or, you know, if you don't have some kind of documentation written that has some visual aids or whatever in it, then you're kind of working with a blank page. You can't edit that. You can't make that better. So if you're operating without anything like this right now, the best thing that you could do for your customers in the long term is to just make whatever, make whatever you can make, record some bad screencasts if you think they're bad. Your customers might not even think they're bad. They might think they're great. If your screencast solves their problem, then it's a great screencast whether you're happy with the production quality or not. And you can always go back and find ways to improve it just by watching it and finding the things that you don't like about it and then taking notes and then doing it again. Um, iterate on it instead of sitting on a bunch of nothing and uh, you know, leaving your customers to figure it out for themselves. All right. And uh, just to kind of round out our entire conversation here, I, I really love one of the last questions I hold in my back pocket just to, to see what everyone says and the stories that come out. So final question for the, the show. Tell me about the best customer service or the customer support experience you've had where you're on the receiving end. So you're the customer in this situation. Um, let's see. You know, a lot of people really like to hate on Comcast. Uh, but I'm not one of those people because I've always had a really great experience dealing with them. And there was one day where our internet connection went out for just several hours. And I went down to the Starbucks with my computer and fired up Twitter and you know, started complaining at Comcast Cares. You know, the people joke about the Comcast Cares account and how, you know, Comcast cares enough to be on Twitter, but they don't care enough to provide good service is, is what a lot of people will say. And I don't really agree with that because, you know, a few minutes after I started griping, uh, one of the guys from Comcast followed me and started messaging me on Twitter saying, hey, what's wrong? Like, follow me and we'll direct message back and forth and figure out what's going on. And the guy was really nice. His name is Will. He actually still follows me on Twitter. And I think I still follow him because he's just a nice guy. And um, he was able to track down the actual problem 
with the connection was that some uh, cable had been severed in some remote county. You know, this was in the mountains of Virginia, and Virginia Tech has a really good, um, has a really great internet connection. It's on like one of the major pipelines, I think. And so the internet there is really fast. Um, but one of the main fibers that provides internet to the New, New River Valley got cut completely all the way through, and they had to go and replace that. I think it got cut during some construction. And this guy was able to make some phone calls and then provide details about exactly what happened to me and, and told me exactly when the internet would be back on. And he was right. And I was really impressed by that. I think Comcast has really stepped it up in the last couple of years. I've been seeing these commercials lately for um, this two-hour service window, appointment window that they have now. And that didn't exist a year ago. But apparently now, when you make an appointment with them, uh, they'll give you a two-hour window when they're supposed to show up. And like a year, and a, a year or a year and a half, two years ago, it was more like an all-day thing that people had to plan their day around. And I'm about to actually deal with this like next week because we're moving across the street. And I'm going to probably put that two-hour window to its test. And I hope that it works out really great. Um, but, you know, Comcast's support has never given me any problems. And they've always been helpful above and beyond what I think um, support has to do. I got so many interesting details about how the internet was running into Blacksburg and what happened with the particular incident that caused our outage. And I never would have expected that. And it was just really a cool experience to get to talk to somebody about what was happening with the physical internet that, you know, this part of the internet that we never really think about. So I was really fascinated by that. Yeah. It's one of those, a lot of people rag on, on Twitter in general for customer support, but times like this, it just, it makes sense. It's, it's not live chat, but it's definitely a more personal connection than you have would have had trying to call some phone number or figure out in the forums, that kind of thing. Yeah, I don't want to call a phone number and get a robot. I just want somebody to care about the situation wherever I happen to be. And I think it's cool that with Twitter, they can do that. They can have a little Twitter search that shows them whenever somebody's griping about their product and they can jump in and have a conversation about it and they can go to their customers where their customers hang out instead of uh, waiting for their customers to figure out which of the 50 ways they can get in touch with them and which of the 50 phone numbers to call. And we'll leave it at that. Joseph, it's been absolutely great. Thanks for being on the show. Great. Thanks for having me. That means episode 23 is in the books. You can find Joseph online at josephrooks.com. That's Rooks with an S. Show notes are up at supportops.co forward slash podcast. Thanks again for listening. I'm Chase. And until we talk again, have an awesome week.